1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of fight back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was this past week. The governing Trudeau liberals took on hate against two of the most targeted minorities in our country. On Wednesday, they hosted a national summit on anti-Semitism. On Thursday, they held one on Islamophobia. These events came after a spike in hateful and racist incidents targeting both communities. The most horrible of these incidents was the murder of four members of the Afzal family in London, who police say were run down by a vehicle in a targeted terror attack. And according to B'nai B'rith, more than 2,600 anti-Semitic incidents were recorded last year and that number does not take into account the spread of online hate. As the first of the two summits was getting underway on Wednesday, Libby Snymer was joined by Mikhail Schlesinger, Senior Human Rights Liaison at B'nai B'rith Canada, Canadian Senator Salma Atalajan, and Simon Granite, Senior Manager of Policy and Communications at the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs. The summit
2: provides an important opportunity for us to take concrete action to combat anti-Semitism. As you mentioned in the intro, there's been a spike in anti-Semitism in Toronto where I'm located. Uh, The UGA Federation of Greater Toronto noted a five-fold spike in anti-Semitic incidents. So what we're really looking forward to is discussing constructive policy proposals uh, with all the summit attendees, including co-chairs of the event, the Honourable Bartish Jagger, Minister of Diversity and Inclusion and in Youth, as well as the Honourable Erwin Kotler, Special Envoy on Preserving Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Anti-Semitism.
3: Uh, Salma Atalajan, what is a concrete action in terms of combating Islamophobia? I mean, the, the recent incidences are, are deadly. You know what I would love
4: to see? But by the time the summit is over, that the government releases a national a strategy for combating islamophobia so far we have seen only words incidents happen we all stand up and condemn it and then it's forgotten we we need we need something more than just uh, words
3: uh and what would that be
4: we you know um we need to have the communities involved we need to strengthen our hate um uh, you know hate online laws uh we need to have uh, municipal you know um uh, municipal uh, the hate laws, where people can be charged right away, if we have incidences of people screaming hate at uh, you know Muslims, and 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 what what is very disturbing after that horrible horrible incident in London Ontario where the family lost their lives, is the rhetoric online, and 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 the hate that is directed at Muslims, and that continues. You know, I'm I'm very happy that uh, the Liberals are holding this uh, summit on Islamophobia. But if you remember, it was in 2018, the Standing Senate uh, Committee on Canadian Heritage uh, did a study on combating Islamophobia, and they had recommendations, and I I, I don't think any of those have been implemented.
3: Michal Schlesinger, what do you think is needed in terms of our hate laws? Are they strong enough?
5: To to be clear, uh, we are participating, of course, in in today's anti-Semitism summit. We've been consulted on the planning of it. We've been invited to participate in it. And we've submitted a a detailed paper that includes 39 action-oriented proposals. Um, So there are many aspects, uh, hate hate crime laws. Uh, There are many, many, uh, uh, many issues to be addressed, uh, including the one that uh, the Honourable Senator uh, mentioned, for example, Um, with respect to online hate, um, our view is that uh, one key action uh, would be or will be, uh, and and we hope to see this uh, turn into a reality, as I'm sure it will, I hope it will, uh, not to leave action in the hands of service providers and platforms alone. Um, And we've suggested a mechanism um, Libby be uh, perhaps patterned after the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council uh, that will actually engage governments, platforms, and, and and really all of uh, civil society um, in addressing, uh, it, it, for example, of course, anti-Semitic hate speech and, and all forms of uh, uh, hate speech, for that matter.
3: Senator Atalajan, uh, concretely, what are you hoping for from tomorrow's summit? Like I said, um, I, we won't want to
4: see a national uh, strategy for combating Islamophobia. And, you know, we can put anything down on paper. We can make all kinds of laws. But until they're not implemented, it's a useless piece of paper. You know, words matter. And, and I, after this incident, when I rose in the Senate and I spoke, and I said that, you know, even, even where I sit, you know, language is used that is harmful to the perception of Muslims. You know, regularly identifying Muslim-majority countries as being condemned as Islamic state. And we, they choose to attack, uh, identify an attacker by religion where they're only Muslims. You know, words matter. And and, and the role that the media plays, sometimes Muslims up and Islam are port- portrayed as a threat. And that offers justification for individuals to commit acts of violence. So we have to be very mindful of that. But I'm hoping that it's just not an election ploy. And I'm hoping that we will have a strategy by the end of the year.
1: Canadian Senator Sama Atalajan, Mikhail Schlesinger, Senior Human Rights Liaison at B'nai B'rith, Canada, and Simon Granite, Senior Manager of Policy and Communications at the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. This is Zuma Radio's best of fight back. I'm Jane Brown. It came as a surprise to many, especially when it seemed earlier that the Canadians wanted to keep the land border closed to Americans and the Americans were keen to open it up. It was announced on Wednesday by the U.S. Homeland Security Department that the border would remain closed to Canadian residents for non-essential travel until at least August 21st. That announcement came after the Trudeau Liberals revealed that fully vaccinated American residents would be able to cross the border into Canada as of August 9th. Joining Libby's Nimer for a discussion on the differing approaches to reopening the Canada-U.S. border, Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and the mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario, Jim Diodaddy.
2: No, I have to tell you, growing up in a border town, our communities are so tightly interwoven and integrated that even when I travel in the U.S., it's amazing how many people will say to me, I thought you were Canadian." I say, I am. And they said, well, how can you be the mayor of Niagara Falls? They don't realize there are two Niagara Falls, one in Canada and one in the U.S. And I work really closely with Mary Stano in Niagara Falls, New York. And I'm in regular contact with congressmen and senators about this issue. And we're all surprised. So we did get the heads up before the announcement. So on the weekend, I was speaking with Congressman Brian Higgins, and he's been a big advocate for opening the board on both sides. And even he was in shock. He said, wow, Because Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had been pressuring our ambassador and saying, if you don't open, we may unilaterally open. And here we are, (laughs) beating them to the punch. It was a surprise for
6: everybody.
3: Rocco Rossi, what do you think of this? Is this something that could ultimately benefit us?
6: We're never benefited when there are restrictions. And so I'm with with the mayor uh, very surprised it is not backed up by science. Uh, vaccines are game changers and uh, we've now been told by the Canadian government when and how the game changes, August 9th, um, and the U.S. Uh, should uh, be reciprocating um, because it's been way too long and, and we're so integrated. This isn't simply neighbours, these are family, friends, work colleagues, uh, people who have properties on both sides of uh of the border and really, really crucial that it be open, but it be opened appropriately to fully vaccinated uh, individuals. You know, when the province announced phase three and, you know, a, a larger reopening for a border town where so much of the traffic depends on, on tourists, that, that reopening was, was meant far less without a reopened border and the same is true for our neighbors south of the border you know, with these restrictions on fully vaccinated Canadians at a time where now Canada has exceeded the United States in terms of levels of vaccination.
3: Do you anticipate any problems with which vaccines are going to be recognized with Springsteen for a while? They didn't want to recognize AstraZeneca, which is not approved in the States. We've just been hearing about some cruise lines saying if you've mixed your vaccines, we're, we're not going to let you on board. Do you anticipate any of those problems or have you had any contact with the Americans over that issue?
2: Yeah, we have, and I think we're ironing things out. The irony is, all of the four approved ones in Canada are are sold to us from the United States, <laughs> yeah. uh, which which is a little bit ironic. And we're saying follow the World Health Organization when you're determining what will be allowed, because if every country has has a different set of rules, international travel is going to be a disaster. And and Niagara Falls here, we're the number one leisure destination in Canada. We get we have 14 million people every year. Typically, 25% come from the U.S., and they represent 50% of the dollars that come into our community. And and another stat for you, 40,000 people count on tourism in Niagara Falls to feed their families. So we need to get it right. We also don't want border delays. Typically, it's a 32-second crossing wait, and right now it's going to be around five minutes. So. We've got the casino open tomorrow. We got patios everywhere. All the attractions are open. Niagara Falls is bustling once again and we want to make sure we got one chance to get it right because when the summer season's over, things quiet down and that revenue has to carry them through the rest of the year.
1: The mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario, Jim Diodati, and Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. I'm Jane Brown and this is Zuma Radio's best of fight back. Coming up after the break, the premier's own science table calls for provincially issued vaccine passports.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back.
1: The latest call for a provincially issued COVID vaccine passport has come from members of Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. The table published a 21-page brief saying vaccine passports or certificates could be useful in reopening higher risk settings in the province sooner. Dr. Peter Uni is scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table, and he says the only way to deal with this is to make a distinction between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. Dr. Uni joined Libby Snymer with more of his perspective on Thursday.
7: I think, you know, the point is we would need to consider it now. We just have a reality here, and this reality right now is called the Delta variant. It just won't go away. And, you know, rather than having to rush something in a few weeks or months when it's inevitable, we should now just, you know, broadly discuss the issue and acknowledge the challenges And like privacy, equity, accessibility. That's all really, really important that we get this right. And then just have more of an attitude like Quebec has, that says, okay, if we need it, we have things prepared that we can use it if needed. And, you know, perhaps we're lucky and we don't have to. Right now, it doesn't look as if, uh, considering the situation we're in.
3: Dr. uni, obviously, you are from Europe. These things have are being used in Europe, and uh, they're isn't there. I, I don't see much opposition to them. As a matter of fact, when uh, Emmanuel Macron said that people would need uh, vaccination passports to get into certain fun places, uh, they suddenly were overwhelmed with people getting vaccinated. So uh, as somebody from Europe, uh, what do you make of it when you see the kind of uh, certificate hesitancy we have here?
7: No, oh, it depends entirely on the country. So you're completely right with France. You know, the uh, the um, number of registrations for getting vaccinated went up. But there's also the French drama happening right now. We need to be aware of that. You know, this went very fast. That's not how to do it. You know, from, from zero to 100, very quickly, we would like to have a discussion. We would like to leverage the sense of community in, in Ontario and in Canada in general much better. So where it really works well apparently is in Denmark for example, the Danes are very pragmatic uh, it actually works well even though there's now a little bit of controversy in my home country in Switzerland um, it works well uh, in, in in other places so the point is it's probably inevitable that we at least need this in our toolbox if we don't want to restrict again. Did you know that today is a really quite a symbolic day unfortunately for all of us. For the first time since uh, April 20th, uh, our effective reproduction number R jumps above one again, indicating we start with exponential growth again in this province. This shows you we don't have that much time to lose for two things: to get everything right with getting people vaccinated. We still have loads of people out there, you know, who are not, and to have this discussion to find solutions if we need. We don't want, you know, this patchwork then of of, uh, you know, certificates or paperwork or so organized by private companies. We'd rather want that, you know, coming from uh, the provinces and the Fed.
3: You're the science advisory table. The premier keeps saying that he's listening to the experts on this. He is obviously not listening. I mean, what is your sense of how seriously you are being taken? Not you personally, but the whole table.
7: Let's see how this goes. You know, so far we always had very good and constructive discussions at, you know, at at the different levels. And, you know, we just need to be aware of this. There is no such thing as completely unproblematic decisions during a pandemic, and this is again, this will take time. You know, what I just see is I can't see many alternatives. So we'd rather plan early now and address all the concerns. And there are concerns. You know, we shouldn't say, "Oh, this is just unproblematic." You mentioned it with the uh, with the app, the federal app, for example. We need to really make sure that we have something that actually works and doesn't discriminate against people. And uh, we can do that. And, uh, you know, the point is when we, there will be a point in time relatively soon where we need to make a decision. What do we do? Do we start to impose restrictions for everybody or do we start to use something like a vaccine certificate? That's probably inevitable. So uh, let's just see how it goes. I sense a certain openness in some of the people, and uh, let's see what the premier says in the future.
1: Dr. Peter Yuni, Scientific Director of Ontario Science Advisory Table. This is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. I'm Jane Brown. There is new research that may ring true with many Zoomers in leadership positions. From Deloitte, it details how executives and managers simply cannot take life during the pandemic anymore. 1,100 business and public sector leaders were questioned. The study reveals just over half of them are contemplating leaving their roles, and a quarter are considering resigning outright. Many of these individuals are contemplating moving to a less demanding position or retiring altogether. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Tuesday, I was joined by a panel of experts to discuss this trend. Dr. Rick Hackett, Professor of Human Resources and Management at McMaster University. Our own demographics expert, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. And Zabin Hirji, Executive Advisor at Deloitte, who told us first about the research and what it reveals about the current mindset of managers and executives.
8: We see that senior leaders actually are um, experiencing very high levels of stress, fatigue. And, and it's really upended what n- has normally been the case in, in organizations where the more senior you are, the, uh, the, the mental health and well-being has, has actually shown more positive results. And so, you know, we went about trying to determine what's, what's going on here or leaders, uh, have an expectation of themselves that, uh, they're, primary accountability is to people in their organizations, and that's what others expect of them. And so raising the issue about their own state of well-being is um, something that isn't really normalized uh, within organizations, and, uh, and, and certainly that's something we need to tackle in, in terms of, you know, essentially making mental health is health. And how do you create the culture? How do you create the role models uh, and an environment where uh, people are more comfortable asking for help? Because certainly what we're hearing now is um, high concern for uh, what that could mean for their career.
1: David, I know you were probably sitting there nodding your head uh, in agreement with with the way a lot of people are feeling in these roles. Uh, So maybe not much of a surprise to you.
9: The number one reason they gave in the survey was volume of work. But I would wonder whether some of that is volume of concerns, because in addition to getting the job done, I now had to worry about how that's done. The neat compartmentalizations that I had before I go in in the morning, I go home at night, so do all my coworkers. Now their lives are spilling over into it as well. The list of items on the agenda was overwhelming. And so I'm not surprised to, at, at these results uh, in any way, and I think there was even more pressure, depending on, uh, you know, your individual circumstances. And we know how many businesses have uh, have uh, disappeared or, or, or are hovering on the brink. And I think um, the cost of that in stress, in mental health, in burdens on our healthcare system. Um, have yet to be weighed, and I think that that's going to have a very long, long duration, and we're going to see those side effects on on uh, on the Zoomer generation.
1: Dr. Hackett, w- what do you make of the results of this finding? Mm-hmm. What's going on with this older demographic and leadership positions, uh, considering big changes?
10: Essentially, what we're looking at is um, you know an individual's sense of well-being is uh, a source of that is having a sense of autonomy, a sense of control over one's environment, right? And so uh, at the time of COVID-19, there's been a lot of additional demands on these senior leaders. And, um, you know, unless resources are brought in to balance out the demands being made, uh, there's going to be heightened uh, feelings of uh, stress and anxiety, So well-being is a function of one's sense of autonomy or control over one's environment, a sense that one is competent, is capable of managing the demands uh, so that they have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to do that. All of us want a sense of belongingness and connectedness. And with senior managers, where a lot of the communications are now via Zoom or other such platforms, virtual, there is this little opportunity to nurture that sense of belongingness and connectedness, which can lead to a sense of isolation mm-hmm. and lack of uh, lack of support.
1: Dr. Rick Hackett, Professor of Human Resources and Management at McMaster University, our own demographics expert, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP, and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Zabin Hirji, Executive Advisor at Deloitte. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Evie in Toronto phoned on a proposal to make COVID vaccination mandatory for health care workers.
5: I, you know, have a friend, a very close friend, and she will not. To get the, uh, the vaccine, and, you know, I hear about, oh, it's, you know, we don't know, it's not tested enough, and this, but, you know, in the past, it wasn't all, it was the same thing, you know, polio, uh, whatever, all the vaccines, I mean, it's all a chance, you know, really, I don't know what makes this particular time so, uh, such a cause for, you um, Rebelliousness.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Mike in Bowmanville, who phoned in about the Tokyo Olympics, which are being held while the COVID pandemic continues.
11: I think the whole concept of the Olympic Games has been cheapened and adulterated by drug use. Um, you you have to wonder, the sprinters and the the cyclists and anybody else, there's so many of them are caught using drugs. You have to wonder if the people who get the gold medals have got the best therapists. So, first of all, I have no interest in it, whatever, and I'm not going to watch it. Secondly, do I think it should be held at the moment? I think the answer is no. There's undoubtedly a possibility of exponentially spreading this COVID virus. And all they had to do was to delay it either until the Japanese population is adequately protected by vaccination or until the COVID situation has quietened down. I mean, they didn't hold the Olympic Games during World War II. And this would appear to be as disruptive a force globally as was World War II.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback.
0: The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.